Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. Howdy and welcome to an extra fantastic edition of Thrash and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast where every gothic vampire rises out of their coffin to listen to aspects of love and the rink. And speaking of coffin, I'm Spencer, and if I sound a little funny, this past week I've been COVID sick, and I'm joined as usual by the man who's overtly sickening from afar, but don't stand too close or you'll lose IQ points. It's Aaron, the village idiot. Oh, that's not nice. If a clown in a sewer ever offers you a red balloon, take it. Christ, insult me first thing. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm right, better than you, apparently. I'm good. You know, this was my first time getting it. Uh, you know, I made it through, you know, about three and a half years, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, I'm doing better. Yeah. You know, I probably wouldn't survive it if I got it. And <laughs> it's awful to say. So you're in charge, kid. If anything happens to me, fake it till you make it. There's a reason I stopped being an actor. <laughs> you can't act. <laughs> can you sing? Yeah. I can't. Not anymore. I have lots of stuff on Spotify. I have two things that I'm a background vocalist on. Oh, have you? Oh, you see, don't tell me anything. I produce records, some of which I background sing on. I train and teach Jewish musicians, including vocalists. I listen to a Jewish album. Connie Francis sings the Jewish hits. I wouldn't really call it a Jewish album. Well, I love Connie Francis, all right? That's why it's there. I love Connie Francis, so I don't really care. Anyways, guess what? What? We have another iconic Broadway diva in the crypt tonight. And he's here to sink his teeth into some heavy metal. So we're ex-Marcy Spot. We sprinkle the chips of this chipper chap who's been chipping away at his truly tremendous career, which saw his chip tread the boards with Beauty and the Beast on Broadway before being drawn direct-to-video for the animatedly enchanting and enchantingly animated Enchanted Christmas. But once that ghost of Christmas passed, he turned the Scrooge up to max with the Grinch then stole Christmas and our hearts as Kris Kringle, the musical. Luckily, this gift of the Maggie's brother soon (laughs) gifted us all with several TV seasons, greeting us on the blacklist alongside Nurse Jackie, who was caught looking at the Naked Brothers band, who were undoing the other two buttons on their crutchy. But you have one life to live, and it could be worse when you have too much candy and end up a twink slave to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, (laughs) and this introduction suddenly took a dark turn. Hey, don't kick me. I'm Jewish. So I take nonviolent submissions only. But let's do the rewrite before we're seduced to the dark side. So you can help me schlep a huge warm shalom. And in Transylvanian, I want to drink your blood to this little chip of horrors who made us chiffon our seats before he crystallized into a monstrous talent and was Ron Nett of town with future appearances across the USA in high school musical Perez Hilton Saves the Universe, Aladdin, Family Furniture, and the Magical Ever After which spells out another 25 or so credits where he manually put Nam in the county spelling bee, then wiped the floor for a good old ragtime. But this wouldn't be today's chosen musical if I wasn't to rhyme. So I'll open Theodore or the guys will go crazy if I don't make this intro as rhymey as Maisie. Cause how lucky we are to welcome to our chamber this biggest blamest full out amazing non-blamer. And no name can blame me, alas, not even a fool as we swim in the waters of his Broadway stint pool where the House of Disney rears its ears on alert for ears of jolly cheers for our Mary and Bert. And what's black and white looks 10, but is really 33? Why, it's one of the many, many, many loud, cheery newsies who all seized the day just for passing a buck when his crutches gave him as much as an everlasting tuck. So before I go and seuss myself dry... 
let's celebrate the reason for this season's rhyme. Especially since we're joined by a truly marvelous, multifaceted man who's worn more hats than the cast of Gutenberg. Because he's an actor, <laughs> singer, dancer, producer, writer, director, podcaster, photographer, cinematographer, and editor. Which means he's just like Aaron, only hotter, younger, and way more talented. <laughs> Our latest victim, who's currently appearing and disappearing in the bitingly funny Dracula, A Comedy of Terrors, at New World Stages Off-Broadway, where he plays the all-important role of actor number one. So let's pat <laughs> our eyelids and drink a bloody toast to the man whose charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent fills up the stage, and who's keen to bull ya over with his charming smile. It's Mr. Andrew Keenan Bolger. Yay. Yay! It's great to have you. Welcome to the Torture Chamber. That is an intro unlike any I have ever heard. I'm going to need a copy of that. Really? <laughs> Please email. I think I've, I've, I've got a Christmas gift. <laughs> awesome. That is pretty mind-blowing. I am very impressed. Thank you. You know, we put a lot of work into our introduction. Try and fit all your, your little bits and bobs in there. Yeah, you got some deep cuts in there, even. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you didn't like it, Spencer wrote it. If you loved it, then I wrote it. <laughs> If you thought it was all right, then we both wrote it together. So <laughs> amazing. Well, I'm obsessed. Yep, awesome. So how are you going? Spencer, you're hosting. Yeah. How are you? How are things uh, down in Transylvania? They're dark and stormy down here in Transylvania. Actually, it's quite lovely in New York City today. It's one of those rare fall days that it's actually like 70 degrees and sunny. Uh, it won't last, but for now, very, very nice. I'm doing pretty well. Our show just opened earlier this week, uh, Dracula, Comedy of Terrors, and just really excited to be getting to perform such a hilarious show for a New York audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a ton of fun last night. It's it's just, you know, that it's that kind of show that just makes you laugh and makes you walk out with a smile. What you're saying is it's not Leopoldstadt. Yeah, exactly. You're in for a good time. You're in for a fun time. Yes, I can guarantee you it is nothing like Leopoldstadt. It's you know, there's a lot to be stressed out in this world right now. And I personally think it's pretty nice to just come to a theater every night and hear people laugh for 90 minutes straight. It is the best kind of therapy at this moment, for me at least. Speaking of therapy, I believe, Andrew, you were born the 16th of May, 1985. Correct. Yeah, I was 14th of April, 1985. I don't at all feel inadequate at all. <laughs> Not at all. Which, Spencer's what? a child so i guess that makes me the daddy <laughs> and i'm not at all bitter or vengeful that's what spencer is for so i'll take it out <laughs> on him so you have nothing to worry about but yeah when i saw that i'm like me being in australia and you guys are all in america or broadway or you know doing stuff yeah i don't feel inadequate at all oh come on you got plenty to be proud of yeah i know that's all right <laughs> yeah come sleep on the floor of my new york apartment that's all you need to do or mine <laughs> when i find myself a sugar daddy i will <laughs> yes all the hollywood hills but anyways we'll move on we're lucky enough to like be in a golden age of new both musical comedies and play comedies i was lucky i saw gutenberg the other night oh i'm jealous ton of fun we're getting some really great comedies and some you know fun not fun i mean like good dramas too we just got vanya announced so we're, we're getting a good mix of, of things here in the city um mm -hmm. but you play a lot of characters in this show does it get crowded you know sharing a brain and a body with the seven characters as you said i play seven different characters sometimes the characters are changing within the same scene sometimes within the same line uh yeah it's bouncing uh like i think 
it's seven different accents. Like no character speaks exactly the same. So it took a lot of rehearsal <laughs> to, to get the show really as tight and as fast paced as it is right now. It's a very manic evening of theater for any of the actors performing. Tons and tons of quick changes, some that literally happen on stage. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a true marathon, but I think is really enjoyable uh, both to get to be in and I'm, I'm sure to watch in an audience as well. And speaking of noisy, we'll move on to the metal album now. So if you could pick your craziest over-the-top rock star writer, what would you put in it? Anything you could ever want. Oh, man. I'm going to have to go with a gigantic bowl of Flaming Hot Cheetos. Like, yeah. that's going to need to be in every dressing room I go to. My desert island favorite food. Yeah, it even sort of works with Dracula, because then it turns my, like, fingers red. Could it be blood? Nope, it's just <laughs> Cheeto dust. It's much better than water. Although if you had have said Cheetos and water, I would have totally accepted it and, and let you <laughs> answer water for a change. Will somebody answer water? I mean, one begets the other, but... <laughs> But milk is better. Milk is better. <laughs> Anyways, now have you had much experience with metal, heavy metal, glam, thrash metal, death metal, industrial metal? I will be honest. I'm a big music fan of many different genres. I would probably place metal as something I appreciate, yep. but certainly nothing that I have a ton of expertise in. And by a ton of expertise, I mean absolutely zero expertise in at all. Same here. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Even if you did, it wouldn't help you on this show. <laughs> this week, Aaron chose the album and he picked Faith No More's Angel Dust. But before we discuss it as a group, I'm going to read my review. I've been with the show for 30 plus episodes now, and this is my favorite metal album that I've had to listen to, which says a lot. Right away, <laughs> that first song, Land of Sunshine, you're in the vibes. I was getting like very Halloween vibes from this album. I don't know if anyone else got that, but like very much the, the first song made me feel that way. I felt like it sounded so much more pop adjacent than a lot of the other stuff that I've listened to for the show. And I, I just, I really, really enjoyed that. Lyrically, there's it wasn't like screaming metal for a lot of it, which I also appreciated. There was some lyrics that you could actually understand and, and hear and appreciate. You know, I really, really loved this album. A special shout out to one of my favorite song titles that I've ever seen on a metal album, which is, of course, Crack Hitler. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, it's great. And Jizzlobber is, of course, a close second there. But I really, my favorite song from this album was Land of Sunshine was that first song. It was just really, really great. Awesome. I'll rate this like a 4.2. I was really, really, really happy with this album. Uh, Andrew, were you able to take a listen to the album at all? I was, yeah. I, I had a similar take to you. Not knowing a lot of metal, this, it felt so much more melodic and like harmonic and, and truly pop at some moments, especially towards the end of the album. I had thought that my Spotify had shifted to a totally different album. There's like a 
a cover of the Midnight Cowboy theme, and then a Lionel Richie cover at the end that like sounded, it was almost like living in the Elton John world where it's definitely way more in my kind of wheelhouse of the music I listen to, the more like singer songwriter stuff. But yeah, I was really impressed with it. It was it was super punk and super noisy at some moments. I think the the singer Mike Patton, uh, especially in the later tracks, like you hear that he has a really impressive voice um, and a real musicality, um, which I think was yeah just a, a testament to him. I had never heard of this band, never heard of this album, but it definitely made me want to listen to more metal albums. You would have heard Epic. Uh, to be honest, in the '90s, when when I think Faith No more is out i was listening to musicals so i even like very mainstream pop songs from the 90s i have like no reference point for i'm like okay. if it's from like miz i knew that yeah okay that's me oh i'm glad you liked it well i picked this because i saw the name jizz lobber <laughs> and that sounded like a dr seuss character and that song itself was quite interesting because that spent six minutes hard as a rock before finishing to gloomy organ music which is usually how it ends for me too so <laughs> I'm kind of related to that uh, caffeine i definitely felt seen because that was erratic and chaotic exactly like i am because i drink too much caffeine uh, and I apologize to the Jewish community for picking an album with Crack Hitler on it right between two Jewish holidays. It's, I'm a Gentile. I have no clue. It was a pure accident. Goodness gracious me. I'm so sorry. And I, I was actually expecting to get told off by Spencer for that one. When I read it, I'm like, oh, hey, it's always OK to make fun of Hitler. Well, OK, that's all right then. Yeah, the, just the timing. I, was, I read it. I'm like, oh, shit, I've put my foot in it again in the worst possible way, didn't I? But apparently not because you liked that song. So, yeah, no, I quite like this, too. I'd give it a four. I took a point off because of the two covers at the end. Andrew, what would you rate it? I think if I was going on in comparison to other metal albums I've heard, I'm giving this guy a five. This is yeah. probably, I also don't know if I've listened to an entire metal album all the way through. Like I'll, I'll hear occasional songs, but like as a full listening experience, yeah. uh, I really enjoyed it. I think maybe compared to the rest of the kind of music I listen to, maybe like a, a high three, low four. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always fun to, to listen to the albums for this show because so much of what I listen to is musicals, just a completely different pace. You know, the last thing on my phone that I was listening to yesterday was the the new Harmony cast recording. And then to go like straight from that to this is a completely different vibe. A slight whiplash. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. I'll spend a couple of hours listening to The Clash or Blondie or The Spice Girls. I'll, I'll devote a whole 90 minutes to pure perfection with the first two Spice Girls albums and just revel. Oh, heck yeah. Now you're, now you're speaking my language. Well, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Um, so look, Mike Patton's artistry, from what I can tell and from what his fan base says about him, he's quite the genius musically. And it's very much on show. In this, I thought more so than the last album, though I may have scored it higher. This one had the two covers, which I wasn't impressed with, whereas the other one had Epic, which I had just heard to death anyways yeah no I, I quite like this some good lyrics on there well and then when reading about 
the band, I found out that they have a feud with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, oh, do they? Hmm. which was like a really interesting thing because they're both like funk influenced um, and toured together for a certain amount of time and are now like fighting. Um, it, it's very interesting. I, I actually, the covers up the points for me. I, I love hearing different uh, versions of, of, you know, very different non-like metal songs. Well, maybe the instrumental, yes, but not easy. And had they been musical theatre covers, I may have upped the points because that would have been <laughs> the juxtaposition of what we're doing. We hadn't done Faith No More in a long time since episode 10 or something, 11, 12. What? So I thought we'll cover them again. And yeah, I liked it. Um, Some of the lyrics I thought were quite offensive and I liked that. So what's more punk than that? Come on. Yeah, exactly. Like these, these albums we're doing metal. They're not meant to be friendly. They're not meant to pat you on the back and tell you life's good and happy. But I thought they were a lot more poetic than some of the lyrics, which perhaps we can't Mm -hmm. understand because it's all rah, 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 rah. Whereas this one, (laughs) as you said, Andrew, his voice, like he, he hasn't got a good voice. So. I'm quite impressed. I'm glad you liked it. I'm definitely glad you liked it, Spencer, because you are so hard to please. <laughs> it looks like we have faith again, Baruch Hashem. So eat dust as we fly to an ivory. Coming soon to the Bloop Network from the producers of Thrash and Treasure, Around the World in 80 Plays, starring the adorable Lizzie B and Alfie Parker, and featuring the star of the show, Dolly the Dog, they'll take you for a trip around the UK, exploring the rich arts and cultural history of the UK and Northern Ireland. Episodes begin airing exclusively to the Bloop Network on November 14th, but here is a sneak peek. Hi, come join us as we tour around the world in 80 plays. I am Lizzie B. And I'm Alfie Parker. And we are joined by our leading lady, co-host, travel buddy and fur baby, Dolly the Dog. For this week's very first episode, we're starting at South End for five days on the first stop of the Sister Act UK tour. In this series, we're going to be exploring UK and Northern Ireland's wonderful arts history and culture as we make our way from city to city with Sister Act. But first, we should probably start off by telling our listeners a little bit about who we are. We thought it would be more fun to kind of do this through a little game. So last night when we were preparing for our first episode, we secretly went and wrote five questions to ask each other to find some random facts about each other that maybe we don't even know. We should probably say that we are a couple we are engaged, uh, me and Alfie, what a lucky man. We've been together for five years now and are working together, which would be some people's idea of hell, but we love it and we're in a great show and we're very lucky. So yeah, we move around the country with each other and with the best dog ever, Dolly. But I think through these questions, we might actually find out some new information about each other. So, Alfie, do you want to ask the questions first? Let's do it. Here we go. Five? Yeah, five questions. Five questions. Here we go. Your favourite flavour of crisp? Do you know what? I'm going to say salt and vinegar because I would normally say like sour cream and chive, something like that. But... I'm really in a salt and vinegar phase at the moment. The ones that hurt your mouth. The ones that burn. Yeah, the ones that burn. That's what I like when I eat a crisp. Nice. Question two. 
what are two things on your bucket list? That is such a good question. My questions are rubbish compared to me. <laughs> I'm going to say skydiving, but I think you already knew that because I'm an absolute adrenaline junkie and I would love to do that. And going to South America, which I think you already know as well. Alfie and I are very <laughs> like finance conscious, I would say, and we're actually really rubbish at treating ourselves. But I've decided that saving up to go to South America, not even with Alfie, but with my mum, is kind of the next big thing that I'd love to do. So that's probably, yeah, my main thing I would love to do. Okay. If your life was a song, what would it be called? Why are these questions so good? That's not the answer. My questions are going to be really disappointing after this. I think it would be called... This is going to be such a cheesy answer, right? Something like... I never thought I'd actually do it. No, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And I think it would be kind of referring to, like, I have achieved so much that I have always wanted to, but I never actually thought I'd get to do it. That's, yeah, it's nice. So. Hey, good answer. There we go. What does not belong on a pizza? Pineapple. You see, I disagree. <laughs> I mean, I've only have I only ever had it about twice. Pineapple on a pizza is great. The thing is, though, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of like fruit with in general. <laughs> no, that actual burn of it all, though. Fruit in general, you're actually saying me. No, fruit with like savory foods. Like I don't really do like you know how some people are really into like raisins and stuff. I just can't bear it. Yeah, yeah. So pineapple, no, that's sacrilege. Right, was that your questions? Oh, I've got one more. Oh, God. Okay, here we go. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I feel like it changed quite a few times in my life. So as a kid, definitely pop star was top of the list. But then I actually still have PTSD from this time when at primary school, I was sitting with my friends and we were designing costumes we were going to wear to be pop stars. And then I drew a picture of me in a denim crop top and the girl sat next to me went that's not a crop top it's a bikini from Marks and Spencers and you can't wear it to be a pop star and at the time it was like the meanest thing someone had ever said to me and I still have PTSD so that was the day that that dream died then I felt like pop star was like top of the list but I actually in a sensible way wanted to be a news reader so that's what I thought I would actually end up doing and then becoming an actor was just Mistake. A mistake. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> no, I'm like really happy, but I think I was trying to be like realistic, but now I'm actually doing the best job ever. Yeah, cool. So my questions are so rubbish compared to what you've just asked me. It's literally like a five-year-old's written them. Normally I'm the rubbish one, so that's that makes sense. Alfie's making a really good impression in the first episode and I'm just letting everyone know. First down. impressions are important. You'll notice as we go on that I get progressively more rubbish. Yeah, to be fair, the only way is up for me and the only way is down there for you, go. so it's fine. <laughs> right, here we We're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Spencer, that's Aaron, and we're joined by Dracula's latest meal, Andrew Keenan Bolger. So before we move on to the musical, Aaron has some tea to spill, I believe. I do, because you have played like a hundred characters named Chip, <laughs> and I have one of them. I have Chip. Oh my gosh! As the teacup, <laughs> which... Oh, hilarious. I'm a grown-ass man with a beard and tattoos, and I swear a hell of a lot, but I have Chip from Beauty and the Beast as an actual ceramic teacup, which I like to store my (laughs) loose change in. So, yeah, I I would have had another thing as well, um, because I have Marcy X on DVD, 
Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, right? That's the... See, I try to explain this to Spencer because he has no fucking clue about half of the references that come out of my mouth. I thought you were going to say I don't know what a DVD is. Well, probably. <laughs> VHS, yeah, surely. Which, funny, I opened a DVD case earlier today when I was looking for Marcy X and there was a cassette tape in one of them. Not even a DVD, not even oh. a VHS, a cassette tape. I don't know how it got there, why it's there, but the mystery remains. Anyways, what I usually do is, and it's typically with guests whose mothers or fathers are legendary in some way or have done films or something from 50, 60 years ago. And I happen to have this random one on DVD, like James Munro, Eigelhard, it was Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, not Valley of the Dolls, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, sure. Which his dad was in. Wait, are you serious? Yeah, I know, right? Oh, wow. And I'm like, when was the last time you watched this DVD? And I pull it out. And <laughs> Amazing. I plan to do it with you with Marcy X, and I have pulled my room apart. I've pulled three rooms apart, actually, <laughs> where the DVDs are all kept. Couldn't find it anywhere. Well, you can't not give me credit either. I'm wearing a shirt from Andrew's career as well, because you've played Seymour in Little Shop. Oh, yes. And of course, today's Little Shop Day. Oh, I love it. Y'all came prepared. I have a Newsies cap. Yes, where's that? At my home in Chicago. But when I moved here, it did not come with me for some reason. <laughs> That's beating the beast from the Australian tourists. Hey, yeah, even the the Broadway logo. That's awesome. From 96. So. Oh, yeah, that's the year that I did it in New York. Well, there you go. There, yeah, I saw Hugh Jackman as Gaston. Oh, wow. Oh, are you serious? I don't think I knew he played that. I mean, that's natural casting. Yeah. That's why he's the star he is today, because of that role. It shot him. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. I never knew that. That's great casting. Oh, yeah. The whole cast was great, but you neither of you would have any clue of the rest of them. But we do, because they're sure. all sort of Australians. And... Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we'll move on now to the musical. Uh, that's your segue. Sorry, Spencer. <laughs> so anyway, we'll move on to the musical now. This week, I chose Susicle. And so before we chat with Andrew about that, Aaron, uh, you reviewed it this week. What did you think? All righty. I hate doing this show. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Just let me have that sip of my drink. I might as well. It's like ripping a bandaid off. Okay, well, I had planned to rhyme this whole review, but then Spencer stole my shtick in the guest intro. Great. Anyways, after that short overture, I was met with the vaguely familiar Oh The Thinks You Can Think, and immediately think I've been baited and switched. This sounds like a Broadway musical, not a susical musical. Whilst lyrically it often hits the cat on the hat, having the ensemble sing out Seuss immediately feels like they're appeasing a boity-toity Broadway audience and not setting us off into the wobulous world of Dr. Seuss which isn't the most linear of worlds, not aesthetically, nor orally. This opening number needs to reflect that in orchestrations, not just with book, costumes, acting, etc., etc. This is a musical after all. Things pick up after the opening, and they don't much slow down as we meet Horton, a single eligible bear, sorry, elephant, whose iconic story of hearing The Who frames this story. But sadly, not the legendary band The Who, nor my co-host, whom I call Who? Anyways, the orchestrations feel a little less Broadway as we hit the jungle, and here we feel the vibe of the show, not the theatre's location. A kangaroo with an American accent hops on, 
That's racist. Hey, America, I don't know if you know this, but kangaroos sound just like me. <laughs> Anyways, Horton's journey to save the Who's and their dust speck home is intertwined with several familiar Dr. Seuss stories in a way that makes more sense than Charlie Brown and more enjoyable after the disaster with Sondheim's company. Vignette musicals need more than just an epiphany to connect them. But as for what's happening here, well, there on who deposits a dollop of exposition, saving me from having to here. Thankfully, the orchestrations transport me to the setting. As this perhaps overlong but fittingly chaotic album reaches its climax, as did Horton apparently, an egg? And what's more, it hatches to reveal, spoiler alert, an elephant bird? Five stars for interspecies sex. But as for the show, with different orchestrations, non-linear instruments, think The Lion King, that transports us through orchestrations, even for the songs that are considered Western or American. Here, the Broadway sound softens the quirky that is ultimately needed to successfully transport these genuinely great songs into this legendary world. Three and a half stars. The Broadway orchestrations and instruments are like pickles in my cheeseburger, affecting the overall taste. Take out the pickles, replace them with lettuce and red onion, and yum, now I'm hungry. Anyway, so there's a great show here. The orchestrations, I think, ruined what I heard. So, Andrew, you, of course, were in the cast of Susical. Yes, I'm sorry. Thank you for not exiting. Oh, no, it's fine. I, I, I mean, I think everyone who was in that show have... A comp- There's a lot of ambivalence. There are a lot of complicated memories with that. It's one of the more famous Broadway flops in that I think there were, like, sky-high expectations for it. We had done a couple workshops and readings of it that had gained a lot of buzz and people were really excited for it. And basically, as soon as we went out of town, it was a little bit of a disaster. Just, I think, developing the physical production of it and trying to get that world was really tricky because they didn't want people to have like fuzzy Disney World faces. And so while we were out of town, they fired the scenic designer, the costume designer, the director. Also, me? (laughs) I uh, I was 15 at the time and I was playing JoJo. And my voice changed when we were out of town in Boston. And so when we moved to New York, I got bumped down to the alternate and really only performed on Broadway for a month as that part. And so I I don't have, I I would say I do not have very good memories of that other than I did get to work with some incredible artists on it and some really talented actors. But all in all, it was not a positive experience, especially I think as a teenager. The theater up until that point had been a hobby for me and all of a sudden became like a real business. And I think I learned a lot of lessons that it's not always fun and games and Broadway. It's a enormous business with a ton of money at stake. Yeah. Now Spencer picked this album just for the record. Spencer picked it. He's been desperate to do this musical for months and months and months. <laughs> yeah. As soon as we got someone involved with it, he's picked it. I'm so sorry on behalf of Spencer. Oh my god, no. Well, <laughs> there there's a lot about Susical that I'm super proud of. And I think the joy and like the, the true essence of the musical is the score and like when we were doing all the workshops, everyone was like, this is such a beautiful, these songs are so beautiful. And this like 
is really clever in the way that they're able to tell this. And I think just as soon as all the physical production got heaped on top of it, I think it lost its way. But it's been really nice to see. It's now one of the like most produced shows. It went from being a big flop on Broadway to being a huge success in regional theaters. And I think mm -hmm. especially in schools where I have seen productions of it that there are small town directors who have been so incredibly creative with how they've chosen to depict the physical world that it has had a much greater and grander life being off Broadway than it ever was, certainly when it was on Broadway. Yeah. And I think that's, this is, they pandered to them. Sorry, Spencer. You go. It's your episode, well, not mine. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, that's how I was introduced to Susquehanna regionally. And I love the show, which is why, like, it's the perfect candidate for, like, encores. Because it's a beautiful score. Totally. And just, I would love to see it performed in New York again. And a real show where, like, design was really, like, I've, I've seen, it's been 20 years. We can say that I've seen bootlegs. Mm -hmm. Like, it, I, yes. All of those people have gone on to have very lucrative careers after that and yeah. have designed incredible stuff it's just like that wasn't necessarily the right world for it the show has i'm sure recouped many times over by now due to its regional processes and you know yeah. speaking of that newsies which was originally created i believe for regional and high schools and then ended up at paper mill as a you know show that just everyone you know loved and fell in love with and transferred to broadway for a limited run then was converted to an open run showing that licensing is you know is a great way to make back your money. And I think a show like Newsies, they had the reverse thing where the movie was a huge flop uh, for Disney and was kind of a big disaster for them and in some ways killed the live action movie musical for that studio. And then the Broadway version ended up being very successful. So yeah. things have a weird way. Anytime you're dealing with IP, it, you can never predict how something is going to play to different audiences. Yeah. Well, and then you would, and look, if we're talking about flops right behind me on the wall, I mean, Diana, right there. I, I, I think that that's, that's not a flop. That's a should never have happened. So it should have been left well enough alone. Sorry. I'm part of the Commonwealth. But, you know, we see things like that. And there's sometimes just, you know, things don't come together. Creative ideas, they don't necessarily gel. And they weren't willing, I don't think, to have fun with it as much as they should have been. And they should have. They should have. Get rid of the Broadway instruments. That's what they should have done. Like the typical instruments. I don't want to hear trumpets and, and pianos and guitars and stuff. I want to hear like wooden fish. Or washboards and stuff like that. Like, you know what I mean? I want to hear Whoville. I want to hear the Dr. Seuss world. And that's what I didn't hear listening to this. And I'd only vaguely heard Oh, the Things She Can Think and Hear on Who. Those are the only two songs I'd heard before sitting down and, and listening to it over and over again. Every time, that's what I just kept thinking, is that they're pandering to the hoity-toity Broadway audience who are going there on their Friday night after their hard day in New York City, and they're looking for a Broadway show. They're not looking for a kid's show. They're not looking for Dr. Seuss. You know what I mean? They're not looking for that fun. But when you look at what they did with The Lion King, which was three years before this, they went all out with the instruments. I think The Lion King is actually very childish. Well, but Lion King has has some really great puppets in there. The puppetry, great, but great puppetry does not a good show make. You know what I mean? Like, so I was disappointed there. Here, I think, well, what it came across to me is that they wanted to appease this Broadway audience. And that's why you had, oh, the things you can think. If you get rid of that song or at least change 
the orchestrations, take away the ensemble singing it, perhaps wait until here on who till you bring them out. Maybe I would have started off the show a lot better, but it wasn't until we got into the jungle and then here on who that had the Seuss sound, but still the instruments, I thought, let it down. So had they gone all out, had fun with it. Why not? Money. That's why money. They won't have fun. Well, speaking of puppets, there were some very unexpected puppets in Dracula that you had a ton of fun with. I don't know if I've seen you do any work with puppets before. Oh, I certainly have not. No, I. there were only five actors in Dracula and like 20 or so characters. So it definitely means almost all of us are doubling up, tripling up, um, and sometimes within the same scene. So yeah, there is a scene where I... In addition to playing one of my characters, I'm playing two other characters at the same time with two puppets, which has been fun to sort of figure out. And I will say they were not great at first. Every night they they gain a little bit more humanity and I figure out how to give them a little bit more life. Do you find you can't help but look in the eyes? <laughs> yeah, totally. The, these two are also like a little creepy. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, they they hang backstage and every single time because it's very dark back there. I will walk past them and think it's a real person and be like very spooked out. Well, speaking of which, Spencer, where's Slappy? Oh, no, I've just ruined it. I should have said, where's the tape dispenser? He had this tape dispenser behind him, right? And I looked at it and I've gone, is that Slappy? And he's like, no, it's some random dude. And I was like, no, that's Slappy. He's like, no, it's some random dude. I'm like, I can see the G on the bottom. That's Goosebumps. That's Slappy. Oh, what's Goosebumps? Oh, I was born in 1985. I sure know what Goosebumps is. Night of the Living Dummy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, um... <laughs> Just the inevitable question back on Seussicle, what, presuming you read them as a child, what were your favorite Dr. Mm. Seuss books? Oh man, I love the Lorax, which yep. now you look at it, it's way ahead of its time, which is basically about climate change uh, and like deforestation. Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful, a beautiful story. And actually when we did the out of town of Seussicle in Boston, there was a whole, I think it was like a 15 minute mini musical in the second act of the Lorax that was really, really beautiful and ended up getting cut just because a lot of like, I remember the critics had like a huge problem with it just dramatically where they're like, this does not move the plot along and feels like a real detour. And I know it was like very heartbreaking for both the cast and uh, the writers of it to see that cut. I've always been interested. I'm like, if they ever do a revival, they would find a way to put it back in. Cause it's, I, I think it was some of the most beautiful music in the show that ended up getting cut. Well, you know, especially with writers who are still alive, um, they're lucky enough to get to make the changes. If we look at Braid, which was recently revived, Jason Robert Brown and Alfred Urey went to Michael Arden and said, um, we have some changes we wanted to make for about 10 years. Can we make them? And he said, <laughs> yeah, it's your show. Like, do it yeah yes. um and so and, and they ended up putting in a song that they had cut i think in the london production a while back and so just like things like that too that they were just like i want this back in the show speaking of the lion king they cut morning report oh yeah that true. song got cut from the movie and then it got cut from the broadway <laughs> show and now it's been cut from cast albums apparently oh wow well aaron what's your favorite Dr. Seuss book. Funnily enough, my favorite is one that I don't think is written by Dr. Seuss. It was um, A Fish Out of Water or something where a kid feeds the fish too much and it grows too big. So he puts it in a bigger tank and it oh, keeps growing and yeah. he puts it in a bigger one. Yeah, I loved that one as a kid. I always liked the Sneetches. Oh, yeah. 
star-bellied sneetches. Yeah. Well, and so it appears you like green eggs and ham, and so off we go to an advert center. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. 
but all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on Earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbaya Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose! she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! We're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Spencer, and the passenger seat is Aaron, and we're taking a trip to Transylvania with Andrew Keenan Bulger. So, of course, now we uh, have been, uh, Broadway's been reopened now for two years. 
Um, has there been a piece of theater that you've seen post pandemic that has really just like given you hope for the future of this industry? Yeah, I think uh, this was like the previous award season. I got to see uh, the musical A Strange Loop uh, written by Michael R. Jackson, who I actually grew up with in Detroit. And so I was so incredibly moved just to see someone I knew from like the old days get to have his show on Broadway. But it was so personal and so specific. And so I think unlike something that I had been used to seeing produced on Broadway, it was just incredibly moving. And I thought a really beautiful show. And I think a lot of people were hesitant about wanting to see it because they're like, this feels like it's not written for me. And I think of a lot of people who I talked to who ended up seeing it, they're like, you know, it was interesting because it certainly was not written for me, but I think within the highly specific, there is actually a lot of universal. And I think a lot of times people think the opposite, that if you make it for the masses, it will appeal to more people. But I, I don't often think that that's true. I think when you are trying to cast a super wide net, you often end up writing a show for no one. Uh, and this was something where this was certainly not my life story. This is not how I see the world, but getting to experience it through a really hyper-focused lens, um, I was incredibly moved by it and just made me excited to see whatever Michael R. Jackson is going to be working on in the future. Yeah, I mean, I saw it and very much felt that way, like that it wasn't written for me, but I did find that, you know, those moments in there that I was like, that, that it had that relevance for me. When I think about this question, I was lucky enough to just see Here Lies Love and like walking into that space and seeing what that was, was just like, this is so unlike anything I've ever seen um, that, you know, gave me hope very much for, for the future and for my future in the industry as well. I want to see it so badly. I saw it off Broadway and really loved it and have heard that it's in many ways even cooler uh, in a big space. I'm so excited to see it. And again, I won't get to see it because I am in Australia. Come visit! Yeah, if I could. I would. With a strange loop, I just want to throw it in there that perhaps it was written for the 19 fucking producers that had to have their names on the post of. That's true. What was with that? And yet you couldn't keep the show open. Oh, goodness gracious me. But you still got your Tony, didn't you, kids? <laughs> I'm very passionate. Very passionate about that. Um, But I think that's also a problem that we have at the moment is if you're an audience member and you're sitting there going, well, this show isn't for me. I'm not going to go see it. What the fuck, man? Why can't you go on someone else's journey? Isn't that meant to be storytelling? Isn't that meant to be entertainment? Isn't that art? You're meant to see other people on stage. So it should not just be the people who a show is written for. I think that's nonsense. I, I agree with you when, you when you say that if you're writing a show for everybody, you're writing it for nobody. True. That's not always mm -hmm. a bad thing, I don't think necessarily. When you look at how successful the market Marvel movies have been and it took them 30 hundred movies before they said the f-bomb I'm not that controlled is that true wow yeah it wasn't <laughs> until Guardians volume three yeah they like just said it oh my gosh they shoehorned one in there it didn't need to be in there if he had like smacked the car horn instead of saying it that would have been funny. That would have been a funny <laughs> joke. We would have all been in on that joke. How have I detoured there? It's about writing it for everybody. What am I like? But they do write them for everybody. They're not writing them specifically for one age group or one gender or anything like that. Sure, the casting and, and all that and not enough female characters. Like I totally get that. Yes. But again, you're not 
going to sit down to watch yourself in a mirror. You're watching someone else's journey. Strange Loop should have been given a better chance. And I think people should not have turned their nose up at it because it wasn't written for them. I think that's a bullshit mm-hmm. cop out. And that's the world we live in now that people are demanding art that speaks to them. So write your fucking own art. Write your own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that part. Read other people's and enjoy it. See other people's and enjoy it because you were taken on their journey. Well, I believe Strange Loop actually did really well in London recently. Um, oh, did it? Which is really exciting to hear. Yeah, and I mean, it did win Best Musical. Like, I yeah. think I think the New York theatre audience, we wanted it to be a commercial success. And I think for a while it, it probably did. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure if it recouped or not, but nope. um, I think it, it, it meant a lot that there were producers who were willing to invest in that, knowing that they may not get that money back, but the world would be better for it getting to play for an audience every night. But they get the name on the poster. And a nice little spinny statue. <laughs> it, it took up half the poster. I go fired up about that. It's like, really, RuPaul? Really? You need your name on the poster? I love you, man, but goodness gracious me. Back down. Back down. What did you do? Give them $100 to buy a freaking hat for the cast or something. I don't know. Sorry. That, that's an interesting thing, too, that we're getting now is a lot of celebrity producers. Yes, because they want the Tony. You have, you know, Mariah Carey joined Some Like It Hot. These just celebrities who I, I very much think, for the most part, are very much gunning for Tonys yes. to complete that EGOT. And speaking of EGOT, you can listen on Bloop Network to And the EGOT Goes To. Plug. Goodness gracious me, getting fired up, I'm throwing my notes around. Back on Dracula. Back on the Dracula. <laughs> were there any jokes or, or pieces that you really liked that were cut out during rehearsals? Oh yeah, a ton of stuff got cut. I think anytime you're doing a comedy, there are things oftentimes that will play really well in a rehearsal setting when it is a bunch of like-mind artists and then you put it in front of an audience and they're like, what the hell? Yeah. Like there is a part, my character is like a total germaphobe, like very scared of his own shadow. And uh, in the scene where uh, Mina has been bitten by a vampire and goes kind of like full Linda Blair and X my character is incredibly scared of getting sick and for a second I like ran off the stage and I was like oh I hope like it's not contagious and I come back on in an 18th century like diving suit a diving bell a la like 20,000 leagues under the sea and it was a super elaborate costume that they like spent all this time and money on we thought it was hilarious and I thought it was so stupid they ended up cutting it after two nights where the audience was like, ah, what? <laughs> it was maybe a little bit too out there for yep. for a New York audience, but it lives on in my memory. Okay. Maybe a hazmat suit might have played better. <laughs> yeah. And you had mentioned before, um, we'd talked about playing multiple characters within a scene, but when doing that, what is it like to find that rhythm, making sure they don't overlap? Because that's difficult, especially as we said, with having different accents Mm -hmm. in play there as well. Oh, yeah. With especially with the puppets where I'm controlling two different characters and one in a Scottish accent, one in a British accent, and then one in a Southern accent, I have fully copped to accidentally making the wrong puppet speak in the wrong accent. Um, Also because they've shifted around a lot of the lines in the previews where they would give one line to a different puppet. So they're like, I think this will be funnier in a southern accent. And I have 
I mean, I've messed that up <laughs> a number of times where suddenly the guy wearing a kilt is saying like, howdy. I know that feeling all too well. The other day I was trying to show off my, my New York accent, which I've been practicing lots. When I'm alone, sitting on my chair, I'm fine. I can do it really well and just speak it naturally. <laughs> Sit in front of Spencer the other day and suddenly I'm Italian. Every time I'm Italian doing it. And I'm like, no, I'm, <laughs> I keep going into Italian. I'm like, hey, I'm walking here. That's freaking Italian again. Why do I keep going into Italian? And yeah, so I, I know that all too well. But on my own, without the pressure of having him sit there staring at me with that grumpy expression on his face, <laughs> I can do it fine. Oh, there you go. He smiled at that one. Anyway, sorry. Oh, it's my question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, now, horror has a bit of a sketchy presence on stage. In cinema, it thrives, obviously, but in theatre, it appears that horror really only works best in straight theatre or straight plays, whether they're comedy mm -hmm. or, or drama. Yeah, drama, I guess. Well, horror. Uh, but comedy horror works best in musicals, Sweeney Todd aside, which is really mostly relying on the gore. There's no real jump scares or anything like that. There's no real fear there because you're sort of on Sweeney's side. That whole time. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think this is a genre problem, or perhaps it's a creative problem? Like they're not willing to to risk it and have a bit of fun and create something that's truly scary in a musical setting? Or do you think maybe audiences aren't ready for that? Yeah, I'm curious. I think I think anytime it's on stage, it is so easy to accidentally slip into camp. Whenever yeah. you're doing anything with horror, I mean, the like definition of camp is like. A failed attempt at seriousness and I think a lot of times what ends up happening is people are genuinely trying to scare someone but with some of the limitations of theater it just ends up accidentally becoming funny which is I think why comedies in plays or musical end up being really funny because you can sort of send up the horror movie genre even like in ours we have at one point there's a ghost that crosses the stage and when they were trying to figure out how to do it in previous versions they like had a full flying rig in our version the actor goes across on a razor scooter and it it looks good but it also is so stupid and it makes it be like unintentionally hilarious. Um, yeah, so I, I I don't know. I think it's I think it's that people have tried to do scary and it it doesn't always work. I think maybe actually weirdly Harry Potter the straight play that is like some stage magic that yeah it is a straight play but they yeah. were able to achieve. I was genuinely terrified when those dementors came down from the ceiling i was sitting right on the aisle in the orchestra and looked up and was yeah. legit terrified yeah what made me shit myself almost was the hand coming out of the grave oh yeah yeah, yeah. saw the two part other uh, four part version really yeah exactly spencer saw the single part so they took out the the hand from the grave but that bit huh. literally like the whole theater we all shit ourselves during that yeah but yeah the dementors were creepy that they, they try um Lloyd Webber tried it with uh, the woman in white, but again, it just mm -hmm. didn't. Yeah, I didn't see that. I remember when that was on Broadway, but. Did you get to see Grey House? I didn't, no. I was very curious about it. It very much did for me what I wanted with the horror. Um, you know, it had those elements of jump scares. It had that dramatic play. Like there was certainly a moment or two that I felt like that was funny and it wasn't really supposed to be. Um, yeah. But I, that's the bet, the closest I've seen to accomplishing like good horror.
Yeah. The one that also comes to mind is the Donmar Warehouse in, um, I think it's in Glasgow, maybe? They did a production of Let the Right One In, the vampire movie from Sweden. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was directed by John Tiffany and uh, staged by Stephen Hoggett. It played over in New York at St. Nan's Warehouse. And it was legitimately, it was an incredible, one of the best plays I've ever seen. And it, had true i've never heard people scream in a theater but they had multiple jump scares where like the entire audience legitimately screamed i i, I have always wanted that to like transfer to broadway and i think it was an entirely um scottish cast so i'm not sure if maybe they were not able to work out like the permissions with our union here but that was really incredible and something that i think took a movie that is already pretty good and yeah. and translated it to theater in a really creative way and something that's very atmospheric no what to me is a truly terrifying musical is assassins oh yeah because it's psychology it's not yeah. jump scares it's not someone running around with a knife it's not ghosts it's not zombies or vampires it's not werewolves it's human beings and how fucked up we are yeah that is a terrifying musical but it can be done in a way that is camp or not scary that they play up the musical comedy of it but that monologue that he does is terrifying. The whole concept of it is terrifying. So that, to me, I think is is one where the psychology of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I got to see it off Broadway when uh, when it was just here um, yeah. mm. with that like crazy cast, and I, I like I was seeing it, and Audrey McDonald was sitting in the audience like right over there. It was <laughs> you know crazy, and it it was in that it was in Classic Stage Company, which is very intimate off Broadway House, and it was a thrust stage, and like seeing you have you know Stephen Pasquale who's playing John Wilkes Booth right there, two feet in front of you screaming these hateful things and I agree like very terrified mm -hmm. anyways we'll move on so some people hold awards in high regard for others it's box office or book sales fan follower numbers what is it about the industry that you use to define the word success yeah I mean all those things are true and I have learned at least that achieving a lot of that does not in fact bring you the kind of happiness that you once sort of imbued all of those things with i feel successful when i'm happy and that that might mean it's a smaller project but something where i felt like i was doing great work on it and if other people are also enjoying it that's really nice too but i if i really think of the things that i've felt the most successful with there have been very few that have met like the traditional box office like critical success newsies gotten awards i yeah literally i think newsies, newsies is, you are rock stars Newsies, it was it's true. girls across this side that were hot for you guys. <laughs> and they weren't even old enough to be hot for you guys. Anyway, sorry. I do remember Tumblr. It is, yeah, legit. That is like the one thing that I feel like sort of met all of that criteria. And I remember yeah. our director telling us like, listen, kids, I know you are young right now, but you have to understand that these are the good old days. Like this is actually, this is the goods. Please enjoy this moment because this usually only happens once in your lifetime. And I think all of us at the time were like, yeah, whatever, we're, we're famous and successful right now. This will last forever. Every project will be as fulfilling and as fun. And uh, he, he was right to, to hold on to those moments. And there have been other things where I felt either like artistically as 
um, fulfilled, but I don't think anything I've done has truly checked every box um, since then. And so it's, it's redefining success kind of every day and on every project and how to feel successful. And sometimes I feel successful in my marriage when like, I am feel like I'm doing a good job being a husband and like taking care of our home. I find success in investing in my family um, and getting to spend time with my sisters. And I think, yeah, if you, if you only measure it in applause and getting cast in prestigious projects, you're going to, it's going to end up feeling really lonely for a lot of the time. Well, and I remember, I think, just last week, I was watching a, a video of Jeremy Jordan uh, singing Santa Fe, and he was introducing it. And someone had asked, "Are you? Do you ever get sick of singing it?" And he said, "No. I. This is what people know me from. This is, mm -hmm. you know, this is that project for for me. And yeah. I'll never get tired of singing this song, just because that's." why a lot of people were introduced to me. No matter what you guys do, what Newsies do, people will follow you. Those Newsies fans will <laughs> follow you to the ends of the earth and see your shows. No, they are so diehard, yeah. Well, I hope they all listen to this freaking episode then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll get some fansies who they're like, I also like metal. This, I never saw my two worlds colliding in such yeah. an incredible way. Well, this show is made for everybody, which means nobody listens. <laughs> now, the correct answer today is you know you're successful when you're getting bowls and bowls of flaming hot Cheetos. <laughs> correct. Yep. Correct. Yes. When that happens, then I will truly feel successful. That's it. Now you have to let us know when that happens. Now, if you could host <laughs> a comedy roast for any Broadway musical character, which iconic fictional character would you most want to read to filth read to filth um oh man uh i mean i feel like we were just talking about it but i feel like sweeney todd there's a lot of puns that are just within easy grasp i'm gonna yeah. go sweeney todd yeah oh no for me it's little orphan annie because i would mop the floor with her like literally turn her upside down and mop the floor with her. <laughs> Perfect. There we go. That's the first joke. Anyway, so which newsie do you think is married to little orphan Annie by now back then? Oh, God. <laughs> well, it would be quite the age gap. She was in the Great Depression, so it's definitely a sugar daddy situation. Well, she's used to that. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm going to hell. Goodness gracious me. <laughs> Sorry, Spencer. <laughs> I'm going to go no comments on that one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so as we mentioned in your intro, you've worn a lot of hats in terms of skills that you have. So what scares you most creatively? Oh, I, I think it's ever trying to recreate something. I, I think the reason I wear so many hats is that I was lucky enough to find some success when I was young. I, I was able to pretty much right out of school like get cast in a broadway show which i had put as like the pinnacle of what i wanted to do and then i got there and you're like well i can either keep living in this like excited dream world of wow i'm on broadway but it gets old after a little bit and so that's when i started wanting to do some writing do some directing uh exploring with like social media practice learning new skills with filmmaking and it's always been the times where i'm just trying to recreate that same excitement that it rarely ever happens 
Addison never satisfied. <laughs> yeah, truly. Yeah, I think my parents told me when I was young, they're like, never stop learning. And I just really took it to heart, which means I have not mastered any of these things because yes, I yes. am incredibly ADD about it, but <laughs> I, but it keeps me moving. I totally feel sane there because I'm like, that's why we made the joke in there that you're, you know, like a more talented, harder, you know, more younger version of me because that's exactly the same thing. Like no one taught me how to make films I picked up a camera and I started filming them and I taught myself how to edit and I taught myself how to write and everything I just I'm in Melbourne I'm not in Broadway or Hollywood or anywhere but I've had to learn out of necessity all the different skills and I've said to our Mm -hmm. listeners if you're young and you're wanting to be an actor learn to sing learn to dance learn to design costumes learn to sew Learn so many skills because there will come times you're going to collaborate with somebody on a project and instead of having to find a third person, totally. you can do it. And we, we would have to seek other people if we both didn't bother to learn those extra skills. So it is important. It's a DIY world out there. It is. Well, and it can also help too once you get to that pinnacle as well. You know, I think about someone like Casey Nicola, who's a director and choreographer, who both skills are made better by the other. You know, the choreography that he does is so well directed um, Mm -hmm. because it's him. It's the same person and they both uh, enhance the other skill. And to bring it full circle with Casey, he was in the Broadway production of Susical the Musical as a performer. And I think... He says working on that project like made him want to become a director because he was seeing so many things within that that he's like, I would do this differently. This is not, he had like a million creative ideas. And then it's one of those people who was like, well, I'm just going to do it. Worked out pretty well for him. (laughs) He has a really nice department. (laughs) So said here first, I want Casey Nicola to direct a revival at Susical. Oh, he would be the perfect person. Yeah. 100%. And to come on this show, I just want to throw it in there. There's a, a film director, John Otterman, I think, or Otman, Otterman. Well, he's a director, he's a writer, he's a, a film editor, and he's a film composer. Oh, my gosh. He, he did the, the score for the X-Men movies, especially the, the, the first run of them. Um, Like, check him out, because he's got a lot of different credits there on some very big films. So learn different skills, kids. That's all I can say. Anyways, last question. Since I'll let you go. So when was the last time you rolled down a hill for fun? Yay. Oh, oh gosh, it's been too long. That's a great question. What? No. Well, in my defense, I do live in New York City. There are not a lot of hills you want to really roll down. No. No, I I can imagine. I wouldn't know. I've never been there. (laughs) You know, if you roll down 10th Ave, uh, you know, (laughs) starting in the in the high 50s, that's a pretty good hill. It's yeah, you might roll over a few syringes, (laughs) broken glass, lantern flies. Yeah, you'll get there eventually. Yeah. Now, just if you do take your keys and your phone out of your pocket. Right, I learned that the hard way in 2019. Oh god. When I'm far too old to be making that mistake. <laughs> but it hurt. And it didn't just hurt like because with having shit in my pants, like it, like literally hurt because I was far too old to be rolling down a hill. <laughs> You're never too old. Never too old. Never too old, just too sore and broken. And so you survived, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us in the torture chamber today. You know, it was really special to me to get to book you. I was 
was a fancy for many years, still am, um, you know, was obsessed with it. And, you know, I was 10 when the show came out. And so it's, it's really special to get to talk to you today. Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. Uh, actually, you know, I I'd followed you on Twitter a while back, but I'd seen how many followers you have. And I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to book him. This kid comes along, doesn't he? And he books you with it like that. <laughs> Godfathers. Anyways, no, All you got to do is ask. Well, yeah, true. But it's, it's a matter of getting through the noise. So, yeah. Sorry, Spencer. Exactly. I'll shut up. So before we free you from our torture chamber, where can people find you on the socials? You can find me just at Keenan Blogger pretty much everywhere. Instagram, TikTok, not really Twitter slash X anymore. Threads, I guess. Twitter. Forgot about threads. Yeah. I haven't been on there in weeks. Oh, I like it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, my name is Keenan Bolger, but my handle is Keenan Blogger. Anyway, so thank you so much. It's such a thrill to meet you, even though I'm, I'm older. Can I be the younger one for a change? Can happen. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, that that that's me. I'm stuck in every episode, sitting here being 21. <laughs> yeah, as a child. That's all right. As I say, there's a clown in a sewer grate with a red balloon waiting for you out there, Spencer. Oh my gosh. Just let me know. Never take anything from a stranger. Goodness gracious me. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. And so Spencer. that's it from us. You can find us at Thrash and Treasure on all the platforms, and now on Tumblr as well. And thanks again to Andrew Keenan Bulger for coming on the show today. You can catch him in Dracula, a comedy of terrors at New World Stages Stage 5 that is open until January 7th. Tickets are available on telecharge.com. It really is a blood-suckling time. Yes, check below for the details and links and all that jazz and for all of our links and all that. Uh, and also a huge thank you to Brett for all your help in putting this episode together. Again, awesome working with you. And I hope we did good. Thanks so much for listening. You take care of yourself and we shall see you all next time. <laughs> no, see you next time. It's an acronym. Yeah. C-U-N-T. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. We may get in trouble from the PR company. <laughs> But let's do the rewrite before we're seduced to the dark side so you can help me schlep a huge warm shalom and a Transylvanian I want to suck your blood. Oh, I want to drink your blood with this little (laughs) chip of horrors. I had to make sure it was drink because I thought it would be a bit weird if we said to him, suck. You are correct.